This is a free download from Delancey Elam Church. We meet every Sunday morning at 10.30am in the Delancey Elam Church building at Le Banks, St. Samson's in the Channel Island of Guernsey. To contact us or find out more information about us, please visit our website at delanceyelam.co.uk. Okay, if you've got your Bibles, can you turn to Luke for me, chapter 12? I'm going to read this parable of the rich fool uh, together and see what it can say to us um, this morning. Shall we just pray before I read this? Father God, I thank you for your word. And Lord God, I thank you that today it speaks into our lives as much as it ever has or ever did. And so Lord, I pray as we look at this parable that you might reveal some of your truth to our hearts and to our lives and to our situations this morning. God, I pray that we would be blessed. I pray that we'd encounter you. I pray we'd be encouraged. And I pray, God, that we would be inspired by your word. In your mighty name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. Okay, let's read this together. Someone in the crowd said to him, to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge, an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, What shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, This is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, You have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool. This very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich toward God. This morning I've um, entitled my sermon A New Solution for an Old Problem. And there's loads of stuff in this parable that we can get about God and about God's teachings. And I probably will only touch on a few of those things today. We could probably spend the year looking at this. So forgive me for just picking out a few things. But I don't know if you're like me, but around your house, you have certain things that you just live with and put up with, problems that are always there, that you've never really bothered to find a solution to, yeah? I go back to my mum and dad's for dinner quite regularly, um, and their oven is still wedged with a, a little bit of wood. I mean, I'm 32 now, and still the oven is wedged closed with a bit of wood. You know, that same old problem you just kind of live with, it just stays there when really you could find a solution for it. And sometimes in my Christian journey, what I seem to find and what I think is that often I have the same problems come up, the same thoughts come up, the same things that I battle with, the same sort of stumbling blocks between me and God raise their ugly head. And I kind of battle with those problems. And today I want to look and see maybe 
at just finding and suggesting maybe there's some new solutions to the same old problems that we have and our difficulty sometimes and our struggle with the Christian life and the Christian journey. One of the problems I have is this. And it says, I want my God for this. Or I want my God to do that. Or God, why aren't you doing this in my life? Why haven't you given me that particular thing? Now, I don't know if anyone is like that, but I often say that. Because we all want God to do things. We all want God to do stuff. I'm sure if we put our prayer lists on the table, we would all find that there's requests there that we're praying for because we want something from God. There was a lady um, called Joni. She's 45. She's now paralysed, but she was 14 when she gave her life to Christ. And at 14, she had the rest of her life ahead of her, and she kind of expected that she would just have the great life, the marriage, the job, the 2.5 children, that she would get from God all that she could and live that that Christian life, which she muddled up, perhaps, with the American dream, she says. But that's what she wanted. But then, as a teenager, she went through those rebellious years and ended up messing up quite a bit. And one particular night, she got home after she just had a Friday night out, and it, it, it was a, she did the wrong stuff. She messed up, and she said to God, God, you need to do something in my life. You need to change my life. You need to shake my life up and wake me up, and I want to glorify you. I don't want to live this way anymore. And she expected, I suppose, God to answer in some way, but three months later, she had a diving accident. And, of course, that diving accident left her in this paralysed state. And she said she remembers saying to God, God, I'm not going to trust you anymore with my prayers after praying that. I'm not going to trust you anymore. And it took a long journey for her to get back to God and get to that place where she said, okay, God, well, if I'm not going to die and I'm not going to leave this life, then help me to learn how to live. And she had a certain expectation of what her life should have been, a certain expectation of what God should have given her and how it should have panned out. And she went on a journey to realise that actually it wasn't about all that. And sometimes we can have a certain expectation of what life should be like for us, a certain expectation of what God should give us. And maybe it doesn't work out the way that we think it should. Maybe we don't see what we think God should give us and bless us with. And in this passage, in this account in the Bible, we have that same problem here. We have the, the man in the crowd. The man in the crowd goes to Jesus with an expectation. And I want to suggest that one of the solutions to this problem is this, that we are to surrender our expectations. Let's have a look back at the parable. Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me the judge? Luke uses this word teacher, meaning rabbi. Okay, Rabbi Jesus, he's coming to the rabbi, and he's assuming, this man in the crowd is assuming that he's addressing um, a legal expert, because the rabbis back then, they were, uh, had loads of knowledge about the law of Moses. That's what they did. They would kind of um, have people come to them and they would say something about their case, like a legal case. They would give their advice, their judgment. So the man in the crowd is coming to Jesus and saying, Jesus, look, I want you to do something about my situation. I want you to talk to my brother to divide the inheritance with me. 
That's what his expectation was. Come to Rabbi Jesus. But Jesus didn't do that. Jesus didn't give a quick solution to the man's expectation. Jesus didn't make a judgment call. Actually, he says, who appointed me the judge of this? And he wants to teach this man in the crowd something quite different. And he does that by using this parable that we'll go on to look at. But that's not what the man was expecting from Jesus. He already had his idea of what Jesus was going to do for him. Sort this problem out for me, Jesus. The inheritance, it needs to be divided. I want my lot. Jesus had a different plan. And I wonder kind of what we're expecting from God and what we're asking for. And whether sometimes our expectations need to be surrendered. Not that we don't keep praying for that. I was taught as a good Christian girl to, you know, pray for what you want from God. Put your requests before God. He wants to hear them. And yes, I think he does. I'm not saying that. But are we prepared for that that prayer of that expectation? Are we prepared to say, but God, I'm still going to surrender it to you. As much as I want it, I'm still going to surrender it to you. In a book called The Image, you may well have heard of this book, um, it makes an observation of today, of humanity. It says this, we expect anything and everything. We expect the contradictory and the impossible. We expect compact cars which are spacious, luxurious cars which are economical. We expect to be rich and charitable, powerful and merciful, active and reflective, kind and competitive. We expect to eat and stay thin, to be constantly on the move and ever more neighbourly, to go to a church of our choice and yet feel its guiding power over us, to revere God and to be God. Sometimes we have great expectations of what we want God to do for us, and we don't see it happening. And there's that little verse, isn't there, tucked away in Psalm, which says, delight yourself in God, and he will give you the desires of your heart. And that verse is so often quoted. God will give you the desires of your heart. Or we say it to ourselves, well, God, it says in your word, God, that you will give me the desires of my heart. Why aren't you? Why aren't you doing that for me? It says in your word that if we delight ourselves in you, you will do that for us. But maybe there's more to it. I'm sure we all understand that the desire in my heart for, you know, my work colleague, maybe who's been a bit arrogant, a bit nasty, you know you have that desire in your heart that they'll trip up the steps or fall off the chair or something? That's just me has that desire, or the person that speeds past you on the road, you kind of desire that they get stopped by the police, all that sort of thing. Now, there's those sort of desires in our heart that we probably know that actually, okay, so God won't answer every desire of our heart, because sometimes they're they're a bit negative or they're not very nice. But actually, what about the desires of our heart that are really good, that are really pure, that are really right? I mean, just one that I reckon all of us will have is a desire for someone that we know to know Christ. That will be, I'm sure in this room we all have that one desire. That's a good desire. Why don't I see that answer? I'm sure there's lots of other things that we have, our our own personal desires. And sometimes that verse can be misquoted so that we can use it as an assurance that we get what we want from God. But actually it's more than this. This man goes to Jesus and says, Jesus, I want you to do this for me. I'm expecting that you'll sort out my situation. Jesus says, no, actually I'm not going to be judge over this. And I'm going to tell you this parable, and I want you to learn from it. I'm going to say something else to your situation. And perhaps that's the same with us, with God. You know, one of the problems on the Christian journey is, well, why, God? Why aren't you doing this? God, why aren't you giving this to me? Why is this person having this and I'm not having that? 
why haven't I got that job, or whatever it might be. And Jesus sees a bigger picture. Jesus sees the real issue, the real problem, the real thing that's going on here. He sees where this cry for justice is coming from. And he's got something else in mind. The problem, I want God to do this. I want God to do that for me. The solution may well be to surrender our expectations and recognise this. That God is for all of our lives and not just a part of our life. You see, when we get so focused on that thing that is the desire of our heart, that expectation that we have from God, when that becomes our our sole focus, we kind of think, God, why aren't you answering that particular thing? Well, what we don't see is that God says, I'm not just worried about that part of your life. I'm not just solely focused on that one thing. I can see all of your life. I can see everything. I can see the bigger picture before me. And I know what's right for you and what's best for you and my timing for you. Jesus could see the bigger picture for this man coming towards him, asking that the inheritance be divided. And sometimes in our life, I think that God sees the bigger picture and is interested in every part of our being. So there's so much connected to that one request that we're asking for. There's so much other things that connect to that expectation. And perhaps God wants to do other stuff first in other areas and parts of our lives before that other thing, that desire, gets answered. You know, in the Greek mind, in the New Testament, though they were familiar with the division between body and soul, there was a distinction between body and soul. The Hebrew mind didn't have that idea. Nepes was this idea of self, this whole person, the totality of who you are. And God is interested in the totality of who you are. Every part of you is important to God. Every part of you matters. Everything in your life, the totality of it, is spiritual. Sometimes we're so quick, aren't we, to divide our lives into segments and parts and think God's interested in this and not that and whatever, but it isn't. And they're all connected together. So when we ask our one little request, our expectation, our desire, perhaps there's more going on. And God says, actually, I'm interested in every part of you. And I want to do something in your life, in this part, that's going to connect to that part. But you can't see that right now. You can't see it. So it's not to get disheartened. It's not to get discouraged. But Jesus, in his wisdom, knew what this man needed. And he knew how to answer this man. And the best answer was not to say, okay, I'm going to judge this, here's your inheritance, whatever. And we're going to look at that now, what the best thing was. So one of the problems is this. Well, if you're like me anyway, God, why? Why haven't I got what I want? Why haven't I got what I've desired or expecting from you? And maybe the solution is this. Surrender our expectations and say, God, you know, I'm going to give this to you. I'm not going to stop asking for it, but I'm going to give it to you. And in all of that, I'm going to realize that you want all of my life. You're a part of all of my life. And I want you to come and invade every part of my life, everything that I am, all that I'm doing. Because these different things are connected to this thing that I'm asking for, that I'm requesting. Getting something from God isn't always the answer. But allowing God to invade every part of our lives first perhaps is. Another problem that I struggle with is this. It's not fair. I know I said this before. I think I struggle with a lot of things, but this is one of them. And sometimes we find ourselves saying this little phrase, don't we? This week alone, I've said this phrase twice on two separate occasions about two different things. That's just one week. 
I am slowly beginning to realise that I need to re-listen to my sermons on the podcast because I need to keep reteaching myself things. Every time I look at things, I think, oh, yeah, that's so applicable to me. This aside, okay, off on a tangent here, but I remember once having a conversation about the podcast, the downloads of the sermons. You know you can go on the website and you can listen to us ranting on. And um, I remember being in a conversation when Martin was here, me and Martin. I think it might have been Mike, actually, at the back there. Um, I don't know. But anyway, we were talking about the ratings of how many people had listened to our sermons. We were in competition about who had, listened, who had got the most people listening. And that particular month, most people had listened to my sermon. I didn't want to say, actually, it was me listening to the sermon, just to, just to see, <laughs> check how I was doing, see if it was okay. I just sat went, oh, yeah, mm, yes, my, my sermons, yes. Sorry, Martin, I should confess that one day. But anyway, you know, it's not fair. We do say it, don't we? And I say it as well in my life. It's the same old problem. God, why aren't you doing this for me? That's the first problem. God, I want you for this. The second thing is, God, it's not actually fair that you're not doing that. It's not fair. It's not right. The new solution says this. Two things. First of all, we are to judge the cause for justice. We saw how this man came to Jesus. And he comes to Jesus, Rabbi Jesus, to sort out his case. But he doesn't come and say, Rabbi Jesus, me and my brother are quarrelling, we're having a bit of a conflict, can you sort us out? We want to be reconciled together. God, you know, bring us together, help us in this situation. No, that's not how he goes to Jesus. He just goes to Jesus and says, Jesus, can you please tell my brother that he's wrong and that he should give me some rights? It's kind of that thing. Can you just tell my brother to just divide the inheritance, please? amongst us, which really meant that probably the split had already taken place between the brothers. And the assumption behind this, we might not realise, but it would have been this, that the father would have passed away and he wouldn't have left a will, a written or oral will. And so the law at the time was that um, the inheritance had to be divided on the older brother's agreement. So the two brothers had the estate. It would have been divided, but it was the older brother that had to do that. And for some reason, the older brother didn't hadn't wanted to do that. And so we know that this guy coming to Jesus, petitioning Jesus, must have been the younger brother because he wants it sorted. He wants to sort it out. And it is an important situation. And it is a, a, a position that this man is in. And he does want justice. And that's correct. That's right. Okay, he wants the, the land to be divided and he wants to get his inheritance. And that's good. That's not a bad thing. But Jesus doesn't straight away step in. Jesus doesn't straight away become the judge because Jesus sees the situation. And Jesus is a reconciler of people. He's not a divider of people. And we know that Jesus demonstrates compassion for the outcast, for the downtrodden, for the oppressed. Throughout the Bible, that's true. Justice is always upheld. But in this case, it's different. In this case, it's not that Jesus is turning his back on justice, but that he has seen the situation that this man is in. He has seen that actually this is going to be a broken relationship. If I make a judgment call here, if I say to the, to the men about the land, they're going to be split as brothers. I don't want that. They should be reconciled. I'm not come here to divide, but I've come here to heal. 
And so Jesus sees the bigger picture, as I was saying before. He sees the situation that this man is crying out for justice in. And I think that when we shout out, it's not fair, where is that coming from? What is the cause of that cry? What is the situation that we're crying out for? And maybe that cry for justice has to be judged itself to see how just that cry really is. Because if it's coming from a place where actually, you know, like this guy, it was going to wreck the relationship, it was going to tear down the relationship, Jesus said, no, I'm not going to answer your, it's not fair on this. Because this situation's wrong. And we have to be people that say, you know what, I'm crying out, it's not fair, but I need to judge where that's coming from, the cause of that. You know, Leslie Newbigin in his book, The Open Secret, he describes a theology for mission today. And he says this, if we acknowledge the God of the Bible, we're committed to struggle for justice in society. Justice means giving to each his due. Our problem, as seen in the light of the gospel, is that each of us overestimates what is due him compared with what is due to his neighbour. If I do not acknowledge a justice which judges the justice for which I fight, I am an agent, not of justice, but of lawless tyranny. I read that and that really struck me. Each of us overestimates what is due him compared with what is due to his neighbour. It's not fair. We need to judge that cry And what is that cause of that cry? See, if we're honest, if I'm honest in my life, my struggles, my problems, they come from a sense of expecting something else, expecting a different set of circumstances, expecting something else to fall on my plate. It's not fair that this is happening to me. It's not fair that I'm in this place. It's not fair that I'm going through this. It's not fair that I don't have that. That's kind of where my struggles come from. But is it for me alone to decide what's just? Is it right for me to stand and say, well, it's just for me to have that or not to go through this? Because what is my cry for justice compared, compared to the child who will starve today? What's my cry for justice compared to the, the women throughout the world that are trafficked? What is my cry for justice compared to the person in abuse today? You see, I overestimate what's due me compared to what's due to my neighbour. Sometimes we can be in danger of fighting for a just cause and therefore we qualify ourselves as a just person and so everything we do to fight for that becomes right. Oh, it's all right because it's not fair. I can do that. I can say that because this situation's not fair that I'm in so it justifies why I'm like this. It justifies my attitude, justifies my actions. But this account in the Bible... This parable that Jesus tells us presents a really different new perspective on the cry for justice because he's saying to this man who's run up to him in the crowd and said, you know, sort this out. He's saying, look, I'm going to look at your cause for why you're crying out for justice. I'm going to make a judgment on that cause. And actually, that's, that's not great because there's division there. It's going to, you need to be reconciled. I'm not going to give you an answer because actually that needs to be sorted. The same old problem, it's not fair. The solution, let's judge the cause for, what, for justice, for why we're saying that. And recognise this little thing, okay, that God's gifts cry for justice also. How are we using God's gifts to us? 
Now, Jesus responds to this man's request for the judgment call with saying this, man who appointed me a judge, he's not making the call of judgment on this situation. And he says, um, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. He's warning the man. Think beyond the immediate situation that you're in right now. Look beyond that, okay? Does this man, do you have a right to say that it's not fair right now? And he goes on to tell in this parable, the ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. And so we get a load of teaching now from the parable itself. The man in the parable is already rich. He hasn't had to work too hard to produce this. The land's produced this bumper crop, and it's a gift from God. You know, it's interesting that Jesus talks more about money in the Bible than he does about prayer. You know, every part of our life is so important to God, isn't it? Everything that we do, everything that we have. And whenever he discusses it, the assumption is that everything material belongs to God. In Psalm, it says, in Psalms 24, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. It's God's. It's God's anyway. So when we shout, it's not fair, do we really have a point because it's God's anyway? Does it mean we can't have things and possess things? No, absolutely not. Well, I hope it doesn't, because <laughs> I like shopping. But we can have stuff. That's not the problem. That's not the issue. It's something else. It's recognizing that actually all that we have anyway is God's. It's not about not having stuff, about giving everything away. You know, we have that passage when Peter confronts Ananias and Sapphira, doesn't he? And they say they've dedicated their property to God, and he confronts them and rebukes them. Because, but the sin isn't that they had the property. The sin is they had made a false claim that they dedicated it to God when they hadn't. That was the problem. It's not having stuff that's the problem, but it's recognizing this, that it's from God. And the fool in this parable had so much, so much crops, so much he'd been blessed with. He didn't recognize it was God's gift, though, to him. And everything that he had was crying out to be used in the right way, to be used in a just way, to be used fairly, for him to be a good steward of it. Stewardship's a really old-fashioned word now, isn't it, really? Sometimes when I talk to my kids at school, kids, students at school, um, I talk about Christians believing in the idea of stewardship. And they're like, what? What's stewardship? Being good stewards of what we've been given. Being good stewards of our possessions, the whole earth. That's a whole other sermon. But, you know, we've been given this. And the parable of the rich fool is one of the Lord's main teachings on this subject. But the story says that the man fails to recognize that he's accountable to God for what he owns. He's accountable to God for everything that he has. And this teaching's for us, rich or poor, whether we've got much or we've got very little, it doesn't matter how much we've got, it's that we acknowledge that we are responsible for it, that it is a gift from God, and we are to use it wisely and steward it well. That's what whole life discipleship is about, every part of our life being spiritual, every decision that we make being spiritual, every choice that we make, everything before us being mindful of God. And everything that's been given is crying out for it to be used justly and rightly in a sense of justice. We stand and we say, it's not fair, God, that this is happening to me. But really, let's have a look at all that God's given us and gifted us with. And are we using all those things rightly and fairly and justly? You know, God's given us possessions. He's given us finance. He's given us jobs, health, family, friends. And we're called to be stewards of all those things. They all cry for justice. 
Are we using these gifts in the right way? My job as a teacher, that opportunity that God's, God's given me, am I using it rightly? Am I doing the best I can at that job? Am I using it justly? Am I using my finances right? Am I treating my friendships in the right way? Am I honouring my parents? It's about every part of our life being spiritual, not just about do I spend time in prayer? Do I attend church regularly? It's more than that. It's more. And this problem sometimes we have about fairness and justness. I think Jesus is teaching us something here in this parable about saying, look, look at everything you've got anyway. It's a gift from God. And are those things that you have, are are you using them justly? You know, I've been really challenged recently. Um, God challenges us on different things, doesn't he, at different points in our journey in the Christian life. Um, I'm glad he doesn't do it all in one go, because then you'll be, ooh. But certain times in our Christian life, we get challenged about certain things. And I'm really challenged lately about the things I buy. Okay, like I said, one of my weaknesses is shopping. I like it in all its forms. It doesn't even matter whether I pop down to Waitrose. I just like it. I like shopping. And God's challenged me lately about, well, what, what are you buying? And do you even know where it comes from? And do you know how it was made? And is that price tag on it really worth what it is? Because I don't want to buy a jumper that's been made in a sweatshop by people who've been trafficked. Because everything is a decision. Everything is a spiritual decision. It's everything. Are we using everything that we have justly and rightly and fairly? I was so challenged by it that I even signed up to the Ethical Consumer website. It's cost me £30 to do it. I hope it's worth it. Gosh. But anyway, now I'm addicted to it because I keep looking through all these reports about which shops are good, which shops are bad, you know, weighing it up. I've gone into a right frenzy. I don't know where to shop anymore. It's all over the place. I think Oxfam is the only safe bet. But it's just confusing my mind. But it was this cry in my heart, this sense of feeling, God, you know what? Actually, if all my life is dedicated to you, if you want fairness and justice in everything, I can't stand and say, God, it's not fair that this is happening to me in my life and treating everything that you've given me unfairly and unjustly, my finances, spending them in the wrong way, doing the wrong thing. I need to know these things. I want to know, are the shoes that I'm wearing, have they been made well? Or have people been in slavery for that? Because it's all about every part of our life. The same old problem. It's not fair. The solution. Let's judge the cause for justice. Let's be confident enough to stand back and say, actually, actually, is the cry of that really coming from the right place? And also recognise that everything we have is gifted to us anyway. And those gifts from God cry out for justice. Finally, the last little problem is this. I will sort it out myself. You might not have this problem in your Christian life and journey. And if you don't, that's great. But I do. Now, I'm not saying I'm not able to do the whole damsel in distress, flutter my eyelids and get what I want result. I can do that. I can do it quite well. But more often than not, I have the standpoint that I'm quite stubborn and I think, actually, I can do it by myself. I can get by on by myself. I can, you know, I'm an individual. I'm confident. I can, you know, I don't need other people. And sometimes I even find, I look back on my life and big chunks of my, 
year, week, I'm going to say, because you'll think I'm really bad otherwise, um, big chunks of my week, um, I've left God completely out of things. And I've just gone by and I've just pootled on through my life by myself, getting on with things. And then I look back and think, gosh, you know what? I haven't really brought God into that at all recently. I haven't really spoken to God about that at all, about what I want to do in the future or this, that or the other. I'm okay. I can sort it out myself. It's about me anyway. It's my life. I'm living it. No one else is. And sometimes that can be a problem for me. And this problem arises in this passage that we find. And I want to have a little look at the solution and suggest that we need community, not isolation. Let's have a look back at the passage. Everything, that, um, everything this man had in this parable, let's look at the parable again, was a gift from God. And what, what's he going to do with it? That's the question. What's he going to do with it? And he thinks to himself in verse 17, what should I do? I have no place to store my crops. What should I do? Literally translated, this text says he dialogued with himself. Now, I'm sure you know what I mean when we say we dialogue with ourselves. Looking at some of you, I reckon you do that. You dialogue with yourselves, yeah? Now, I do it. I speak to myself quite a bit. But I feel I'm justified in that because I live by myself. And so I feel that if I don't talk to myself, I can spend a whole day not talking, which isn't good for the soul, okay? So I justify the, the speaking to myself because I live by myself. Now, if you live with other people, I'm not sure you can't justify that. I'm sorry. What are you doing? Talking to yourself. Um, but I talk to myself. Now, I don't change the accent or like have a different tone when I'm talking to myself, although that could be interesting. No, but I do dialogue with myself. And this is what this guy is doing here in the parable. He's speaking to himself here. Okay, because he's saying, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. No one else around. Just talking to himself. The problem is, in this, in this setting, it's quite a sad scene. Because we are sitting here today in our kind of society. Are we in the 21st century? Yeah. You know, we're sitting with our minds. But if you flip back here to this time in the Bible, we have to put our Jewish hat on, we have to see things differently. And they would have realised, the people listening to Jesus at that time, that that was a sad and sorry situation for him to be dialoguing with himself. Because in the Middle East, in the villages in the Middle East, it was all about talking it through with other people, it was all about making decisions with others, bringing your friends, bringing your family, bringing the whole community, the whole village into what you were doing, even the most trivial decisions to be made, they'd be talked about. Everybody knew everybody else's business. That's what happened in the Middle East villages. So here, Jesus is saying this man is dialoguing with himself here. They would have recognised, oh, that's not normal. Might be for me, but it wasn't there. That's not normal. That's not what happens. We don't do it like that. Really, think of it quite like this. It's a bit like Guernsey. Everyone knows everything. We all talk about it. And that's what it was. And so they knew this man, he's away from his friends. He's away from his family, he's away from his village, he's on his own, he's isolated himself. And he's got this mentality, I can do it myself. I can do it my way. I can think it through myself. I'll come up with a solution to this without speaking to other people. And the thing is, is that he makes the wrong choice. He makes the wrong decision. He makes a decision to tear down his barns, build bigger ones, which wasn't the wisest thing, as Jesus tells us. It would have been better if he had conversed with others. 
and brought other people in on his decision-making. We were made for community, not isolation. And I'm sorry if that, you know, is a problem. Because for me, it is sometimes. I like to do things on my own. But Jesus thought up, God thought up the local church and community. That's what he did. And so when we have decisions and we're thinking about things and things in our own life, it's to share. It's to bring people in on. It's to ask for help. So often things happen and go disastrously wrong and we go, why? Well, yeah, I was doing it on my own. I didn't, didn't speak to anyone about it. Maybe for all sorts of reasons we fear what people might say or whatever, but God created local church for us to be in community together, which is so good. That's why I love going to connect group. You connect with people, do community, do life together, share things, talk about God's word. I know you might look at the person sitting next to you and go, oh, God, beam me up right now. I didn't expect to be in community with this person. But this man makes the wrong decision because he's isolated. He's on his own. And sometimes we can do that. We have that problem, don't we? We just want to isolate ourselves, do it alone. But we're creative for community, not isolation. And secondly, the same old problem, I'll sort it out myself, but the solution might be this. And recognise that it's about God and not myself. It's about God, what he wants, and not me. Less of me, more of you. The man asks this, what shall I do? Again, like I said before, there's no awareness that what God has given to this man is a gift. His crops, his bumper crops. No awareness that he's responsible for that to God. You know, Ambrose, the fourth century Latin theologian, he said this, the things that we cannot take away with us are not ours. Compassion alone follows us. I love that. The things that we have, we can't, the things we can't take with us, they're not ours. And Augustine, Ambrose's student, wrote this about this parable, that the man did not realise that the bellies of the poor were much safer storerooms than his barns. Complete lack of awareness of, of his situation. It's all about me. It's all about thinking things through myself. And the rich man sees things differently. He's not thinking about God. He says this in verse 18. This is what I'll do. I have an idea. Look, I'll tear down my barns. I'll build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. It's all about him. It's my crop. It's my barn. It's my grain. It's my goods. And I'll say to myself, that word self can be translated as soul. It comes from the Greek word. I'll say to myself, my soul, my whole being, you have plenty of grain. You have everything laid up for many years. That's fine. You can just take it easy now. Drink, eat, be merry. He's all alone. And he says to himself, self, don't worry. You've got ample goods here. Take things easy. So a bit of a reflection of Ecclesiastes, isn't it? When Ecclesiastes speaks about that. But the preacher of Ecclesiastes realises that life is a gift from God, which this rich fool fails to realise. Sometimes we get so caught up in the I, the me. A 64-year-old man, after three divorces, is interviewed and says he feels that a robot would give him better companionship than a real person. He could have a robot and then he wouldn't have to worry about being hurt or hurting others. And he says this, I hope a robot would learn my psychology, how I get depressed, how I get over it. A robot could help me anticipate my emotional cycles, never criticise me, 
and learn how to just let me get over them. With a real-life woman, well, I'd have to consider her needs. It's about me. It's what I want. What's best for me? My stuff, my things. And the man in the parable believes that his life, his self, his soul can be fully satisfied with the food that he has. I'll store it up, then I can relax, and life will be great. It's fine, I'll be satisfied. Sometimes we have that same misconception, as I said before, when we expect something from God and we say, God, just if you just gave me that, then life would be fine. God, if you just put that in my life or took that away or whatever it might be, then I'll be satisfied. Then it would be all great. Then it would be roses. Then I'd attend church every week. Then it would be all right. I'd be satisfied. But that's not it. And the man realises, well, recognises afterwards with Jesus saying this parable that it's not about that. It's not about us being satisfied with the next thing. That's not true satisfaction. We need to find a way to realise that our soul is only satisfied fully in God. It's kind of like what John and Andy were saying today about God's message to us. About being content in our position and not our circumstance of controlling us. This word, soul... This Greek word, this self, it can't be separated from the body here. It's the Hebrew word nepes, which is behind it. It's the same nepes, the same word that's in Psalm 42, which says, As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul longs after you. So my soul thirsts for you, O God. It's that same soul, it's that same word nepes, that same idea. As the deer is panting for the water, so my soul longs for you. You see, our satisfaction won't be in the next answered prayer. We think it might. It won't be in the next expectation that was met. It will be in finding contentment that God alone satisfies. God alone is the fulfilment. Augustine famously said, my soul is restless until it rests in thee. The rich man's view was this, my soul is restless until I'm assured of an overabundance of food and drink. Sometimes we think that we can have the answer through stuff and things and answered prayer, but it's not really about that. He didn't realise that his soul would have been satisfied with God, not abundance of things. Suddenly God's voice is heard. And in verse 20 it says, God said to him, You fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you've prepared for, for yourself? Missing the point completely, this man in the parable kind of just missed it. How can we recognise and realise that our soul can be fully satisfied in God alone that it's not all about that expectation or that one thing I want or it, we, us saying it's not fair, whatever it is, by really recognising that actually everything is a gift from God. And I've said it already, but it's reflected again because this verse says, you know what, this very night your life will be demanded from you. It's only on loan anyway and it's going to be gone. Everything we have in our life is only on loan anyway. It's only a gift from God anyway. And that's a little hidden gem, that it's all a gift. And if we approach everything anyway as a gift, then maybe we'll find a better satisfaction in that. Maybe our souls will be more content in God instead of 
demanding and having a right to things. The young man that comes to Jesus from the crowd, who Jesus talks to about the parable, he's propelled to look beyond the bigger picture, to look at justice. Jesus is trying to teach this man something through this parable as he's come to him. And instead of looking at the viewpoint of, I want my justice, I want my land of inheritance, I want that divided, I want this for me, this justice, through this parable that Jesus talks to him about, he gets a different perspective, the perspective of, well, who really owns it all anyway? Whose does it belong to anyway? Do we have a right anyway to say, it's not fair, I expect this, it's not ours, it's God. The same old problem, I'll sort, out, I'll sort it out myself, it's all about me, I'll do it my way. The solution is maybe it's about community, not isolation. It's about God, not us. <coughs> so what can we see in this passage? Well, sometimes we do need new solutions to old problems. And I guess these old problems are going to come back and keep surfacing in my life, and maybe yours too. But maybe these new solutions will help us. The same problem, I want my God to do this. God, I want you to do this for me. I'm expecting this. Let's turn it around and surrender that expectation, surrender that desire, and say, God, okay, I might not get it right now. I might never get it. I might not see this expectation I'm surrendering it to you because I realize that God you want all my life you're interested in every part of my life and I want you to invade every part of my life it's not just about the desire of my heart that I'm seeking you for but God it's about everything and I understand you see the bigger picture and I understand that you see that everything is connected to everything else and who am I anyway to stand and say it's not fair because I need to judge my case is my case, is my cause, is it just itself in comparison to everything else that's going on in the world? Is it fair for me to say it's not fair? And can I really stand and say it's not fair and not use everything that God has gifted me with, with justice and rightly and with fairness? And that's what it's about. And you know, I sort it out myself and do it my way. Well, God says, look, it's not about you community, be with others, be in church, and recognize that it's God. It's God's. It's God's anyway. Everything is God's anyway. It's a gift. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your word to us today. I thank you for this parable. I thank you for what it opens up to us and the teaching that's within it. Lord, there's so much more in that parable we could talk about, so many other things. But God, I just thank you for those few points that you brought to my attention, Lord God. And, and I pray that those things, Lord, would be planted in our hearts. And those things don't condemn us, but God, I pray those things today would encourage us to see your bigger picture. God, that cry of our heart, that thing we're longing for, that desire, that expectation, God, which is good, which is right. God, can we see it in your eyes? And can we see that we are part of something bigger? And can we see us in the way that you see us and the way that you see everything in our life and the way it's all connected God you have the perfect answers God we know the verse those who delight in the Lord will have the desires of their heart but God we surrender those to you we want to be in line with your will and your purposes God encourage us today not to be disheartened that we don't see what we're expecting but recognize that your ways are better and higher and you can do far more than we can ask and imagine anyway. 
And Lord, I pray that when we stand and say it's not fair, God, that we would judge why we're saying that. Do we have a right? Are we using everything justly and fairly? The gifts that you've given us? Are we good stewards? Are we being responsible with what you've given us? Because one day we will be accountable. And to whom much is given, much more is required. So God, stir our hearts. And Lord, today I pray that we wouldn't go through this journey in isolation. Lord, we wouldn't go through this on our own. But we would know that we have those who are with us today that stand with us. We're in community. We're in this together. The highs and the lows, the difficulties, whatever it might be, we journey together and we share together. You designed us to be with others. And Lord, I pray, finally, that we would not focus on us. It wouldn't be about us, but it would be about you. It would all be about you. God, I thank you for what you have given us. The blessings that you've poured out onto each and every one of us. And we just say thank you for that. With grateful hearts, we lift up your name today with thankfulness within us. God, help us to see things the way you see things. Help us to have your heart beat. Amen. Thank you for listening to the free download from the Lansley Eland Church. For more downloads, information, or to contact us, please visit our website at the Lansley Eland at the Credential Cash.